The basis of our humanity is the value that we place on human life. And when we stop doing that, we start to lose our humanity, period. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to another episode. I'm here with Dr. Mike Kalfas today, who is really a trailblazer in uh, the world of addiction medicine in the Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati region. So thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. But let's go get <clears throat> some history because this specialty was not in your grand plan. No, not a bit. Um, I started out, I wanted to be a country doc. You know, I always tell people, the way I always tell it to, to make the story cute, I guess, is uh, I was liking it to um, the Doc Hollywood movie with Michael J. Fox back in the 90s, you know. Uh, for, for you people that were born after, like, 95, Cars, okay? <laughs> this is the movie Cars, but um, which was basically copied from Doc Hollywood. But, um, no, seriously, though, uh, I, I kind of wanted to be like that old country doc, you know, just there and know everybody and... I think it'd be even cute if people, I don't know if people pay me in chickens, but I got tomatoes and stuff like that a lot. And I just wanted to, you know, just move and be that small town doc. And, and I kind of had this unhealthy bias toward addiction, actually. And um, rather than do my own thing and set it all up, I did find a group that was willing to set me up in practice. And the office that they set me up in just happened to be in the back of the drug and alcohol unit. Which to me, I looked as a looked at as a blessing and a curse. I was like, I don't know that I want to be in the back of that building, but it's cheap rent. It's a good place to go. I guess I'll get off the ground there, and <clears throat> as soon as I get big enough, I'll move out and you know get my own building or whatever. That was the plan when I started, and because God had different plans for me. Right. So, did even before that, did you have a predestined thought about addiction? I guess the the. The program that I trained in, which was Bethesda Family Practice here in Cincinnati, I mean, the, the, the general uh, gestalt of our program was that a family doctor finds out what the needs of his population is and meets them. You know, we were made to do home visits as part of our training. We were made to um, – but there was also a paternalistic bent to that training and – you know, I think um, it can be a little unhealthy sometimes in the field of addiction. You know, the attitude we were trained under was, um, at times anyway, um, if they don't feel the pain, they're not going to get better. You know, for instance, one of our, um, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. I think it's been long enough that it's early 90s. Um, one of our attending physicians, for example, if we had a patient that was admitted with alcoholic pancreatitis, if we gave pain medication for that, which is a very painful issue. I mean, you're digesting yourself, basically. If he found out we gave pain medication, we would get our rear ends chewed for that, you know, because his, his opinion was that if they felt that pain, that would be a deterrent to returning to drink. And mm. now what I know about addiction, I, I, I see why you would think that, but that doesn't that's not going to stop someone from drinking alcohol. And it never did. We saw the same people coming back over and over again. And so while we were taught to have this humanistic approach and, and to find the needs of the people that we serve and, and meet those needs, that was the attitude we were trained with. There was some negativity toward the field of addiction. It was kind of like make them want to quit and they'll quit it was kind of – you know, but I think that was the prevailing attitude of the 90s, to be honest with you. It wasn't of the medical community. Right. So it wasn't just that program. It was everybody. Right. Was, so going through medical school, is was there any training? No. Any not, focus not really. on drugs, no. alcohol, addiction, medicine at all? Was it? Addiction medicine wasn't really a thought. It was, you know, we, we were taught what cocaine does, what opiates do. Okay. We were taught that some people are going to have a problem with them. Um, cut them off if you notice that there's a problem. Um, detox them, offer them behavioral training to fix their behaviors if they don't want it, keep offering it until they accept it. Um, and that was kind of the gist of it, yeah. and, of what we were taught, to be honest. Right. Um, okay, so you got into that building and started your 
family practice. Mm-hmm. Side by side with the, uh, I made them put. They, they actually had to put a wall up to keep the patients from wandering back into our area, which I wouldn't for, start working there until they put the wall up. Oh, know, so that was your, that was, was your yeah, deal. It was it was my my um, um, uh, stipulation before I'd work there. It's like you need to put a wall up. I don't want to deal with those people wandering back into my area. Really? I'm just being 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 fair. You know, that sure. was my attitude when I started. Yeah. Okay. So, how did things develop? Um. Well, I was, um, we coexisted for uh, 10, 11, 12 months, and then 97, 1996, rolled into 97, the flood of 97 hit, which was right about this time of the year. And um, when that hit, um, the, the whole town of Falmouth was devastated. I mean, you have to really, if you weren't there, it's, it's almost hard to describe what happened to that area. Two-thirds of that town was under, it's a town of five to 7,000 people, and two-thirds of it was under underwater. Um, the part where the drug and alcohol unit, w- which was the old county hospital, that's the only, that, that's the only part of town that was not underwater at some point. Um, so the, the drug and alcohol unit closed for a couple months. And their census was really low. This was a time when there were plenty of drug and alcohol units, but they were starting to close under financial pressure one at a time. So um, this one was just barely skirting by because it had some unique things about it, one of which was that it was 40 miles from downtown Cincinnati. And, you know, know, the building was already paid off, that kind of thing. And after the flood, when, when they were trying to build back up, you know, the census was down to a fourth of what it normally was. They... They said, you know, they couldn't afford the physician. They were paying somebody, an addiction specialist for, well, with what addiction specialists were back then, you know, kind of different to use that term from now because there's different certifications. But they had someone that was fully certified back then. They were paying him to come down three days a week and see the patients, paying him almost a full salary to do that. And it was really expensive and they couldn't afford him. So... They approached myself and my handlers and said, uh, um, "We'd like. We just need you to provide medical coverage. We have great counseling staff and everything else. We just need somebody to prescribe the Librium for detox and sign off on the charts and you know, et cetera, et cetera, until we get back on our feet." And I'm like, "Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't want any part of that." And my boss at the time pulled me aside, you know, the CEO of our little group. And he said, look, you know, you got to learn to play ball at the hospital. They're asking for a few hours a week worth of work here, and they're giving us rent for almost nothing. It would be very easy for them to just find another doctor to boot you out, put somebody in your place, and we'd have to compete with them. He goes, just throw them a bone for, you know, six months or a year until they get back on their feet, then they can do what they were doing, and you can go your own way, and you know, they'll owe us a favor. And, you know, it was, it was kind of political. I was kind of pushed sure. into it. And um, once I actually got into it and actually had to sit with people and talk with them and, and do the work, it's, I, I saw, I, my eyes were opened. And, and that's where I really found my passion for it. And some other things in my life went on uh, spiritually at the time too, you know. Like a lot of uh, young physicians, I had become fairly agnostic in my worldview and what had been a a faith thing for me early on, I I kind of got more scientific, more secular, turned away from my faith and all the, you know, in your your late 20s, early 30s, you know, that's kind of common. And uh, also at that time, it coincides with a lot of struggles, you know, if you believe Erickson's stages of development in psychology and he talks about all the struggles you go through and you know uh um as you're as you're going through the stages of life and I was not immune to those either and had my own struggles and and problems in personality development being I'm, I'm being very delicate being a young physician in a rural town um they will let you develop uh, an attitude that most people would use some uh, vulgar words to describe, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you can become quite full of yourself, quite narcissistic, and I was headed down that road. And all the, all the uh, everything that entails, you start to get your personal life starts to fall apart. The way you treat your wife, the way you work, the you know, 
and um, for being the man, yeah, that, that, you right. Know, you, and you, you need you, a spiritual awakening, right? And what was ironic when I look back at that time of my life, my need for a spiritual awakening occurred at the same time that I'm meeting other people that, for other reasons, needed their own spiritual awakening for their recovery, and we kind of found that together. You know what I mean? Yeah. So even a lot of times patients, when I'm talking to them, they say, boy, you seem to really understand us. How long have you been in recovery? Because usually in the field of addiction, most people, most people that really get it, you know, have a dog in the fight. Either somebody really close to them has been through, been through it or they themselves have been through it. That's why they're doing this. And patients pick up on that pretty quickly. And they usually mistake me for somebody in recovery. And it's like, well, I am in recovery, but not for the same reason you are. You know, I'm just, I'm recovering from being an a-hole. Right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but that's, I was kind of addicted to that, you know. Yeah. You know, the, the, it, it was all timing, I think, and, and just, um, but I look now, I do I do believe in, in destiny in some ways, and I think that was part of a master plan. I was supposed to do that. And, and thank God that happened for you and for the yeah. thousands and thousands of people that you've helped over the years. Um, okay, so that's. That's how I got here. Mid mid nineties, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, OxyContin comes out in ninety six. So, what would you say the current state of the opiate opioid epidemic is today, to twenty twenty versus even ten five ten years ago? You know, it's um, I, I mean, opiates are just like like guns. You know, you know, there's people that have a problem with them. People that use them incorrectly. Maybe this isn't a great analogy, but there's they can be very dangerous if they're used carelessly. Um, we have bigger, more powerful, stronger ones than we did a hundred years ago, but they still kill people. You know, and twenty years ago we might have been a little more limited on what we had. We didn't have fentanyl. We didn't have this or that. But recently, you know, that we. Uh, um, I, I did. I was asking an interview. It was more on methamphetamine. You know, what was the, the, the article was about methamphetamine, and I was asked, um, you know, what I thought was going on. I said, we have to keep in, we have to keep focus on the fact what we have is an addiction problem. The drug changes. You know, we, we, we tend to say, what are we going to do about the heroin problem? What are we going to do about the Oxycontin problem? What are we going to do about the meth problem? Well, what we have is an addiction problem. Sure which is a, 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 a societal problem. It's, it's a breakdown in, in, in our lives. And, and if we don't deal with why peop- what people are using the drugs for, we're not going to get to the root of it. So, it's a mental yeah, health problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And, and if you don't take care of the addiction issue, it's just going to cycle from one drug to another. I mean, the, the, it's funny when you do interviews, it, it, it always amazes me what – that one quote that gets latched onto and be repeated, and in the recent article, the, the quote that get picked up and has been retweeted a bunch of times is, I said something like, I don't even remember, I, I think I did say it, but I don't remember, it wasn't like the high point of the, the, the talk with Terry, but I said, um, we, we kind of move like a, a horde of locusts from one drug to another, and you know, from Oxycontin to heroin to fentanyl to you know, to meth, you know, we were on crack for a while. And, and the reason is they're always looking for something. And if your, your reason, your way to treat it is to get rid of uh, the drug, and that's how we're going to deal with the problem. Well, another drug is going to pop up and take its place. It's like that whack-a-mole game. Right. You know, so, you know, back to the, the, the gun analogy, I mean, we can make bigger, more powerful, stronger guns, but the root of the problem is people aren't handling the guns right. Right. I, it's so funny you said that because I quoted that part of that quote oh the, <laughs> from that article and it was we try to get them off the drug they're on instead of treat the addi- addiction you know yeah, that's the, the the wrong focus but that's what we always try to do right which and, i guess know, is the um you know triage type mentality of reactionary thought process of well, some, sure. somebody that's you know you're you're in crisis and some things are deadlier than others. Right. I mean, somebody comes, I have two people that come in to see me and one says that, Doc, I'm using, you know, $100 worth of fentanyl a day. And other says I'm using $50 worth of methamphetamine a day. I'm 
I want to, I want both of them to get better. I want to treat both of them. They're both going to have overlap, but the one on the fentanyl is much more in, in danger of dying in the next few days because they're going to overdose. They're going to, you know, the, 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 the percentage chance that there's going to be a, um, a fatal overdose or something or a mishap occur because they're handling something more dangerous. So there is going to be some salient differences, one substance to another. It's just, um, but the, but the core root of it is, and that's why patients will do that. You know, I have people all the time say, well, your opiate addict now just switched to meth. No, he didn't. We have an addicted person who was using fentanyl and I've got the fentanyl under control. And now because their coping skills are not under control, they're using methamphetamine. So we need to sit down with that person and say, okay, what is it you're not coping for? How do we fix that and how do we move on? Because I don't have a Suboxone to give you to cover the meth problem. You know, I put a patient on Suboxone. It's not like saying, okay, here, take this pill and you're cured. It's like it's to stabilize your brain so that we can work on you know, downloading new software. You know, the analogy I use with patients is your brain is a biochemical computer. If you brought your computer to the geek squad and said, and they said, you know, your, your, your motherboard's fried. I'm not a computer guy, but I guess this is understandable. If, if they said your motherboard's fried. And if I said, okay, great, let's treat the motherboard being fried by downloading a bunch of new software, you'd look at me like I was crazy because that's not going to fix the problem, right? You can download all the software you want. Well, you know, going to therapy and counseling and AA meetings to someone whose brain isn't functioning properly because of the chemical imbalance from their drug use is like trying to download software into that busted computer. And But on the other hand... Say you put a new motherboard in that computer and you don't operate, you don't download the operating system and some new malware and you send that computer back out again, what happens to that computer very quickly? It's going to be right back in your shop, messed up again, right? So you've got to, you've got to fix the hardware, but you've also got to put the new software in. And the two things have to go together or you're only going to get short-term success. So when I prescribe something like Suboxone to a patient or buprenorphine, to a patient, it's with the understanding, look, this isn't fixing you. This is stabilizing a chemical deficiency so that you can get to the work that needs to be done because you weren't able to get to that before. Now, that same person may start to abuse methamphetamine. That's not a new problem. That's an exacerbation of the existing problem. Right. And that's a mistake that we're making. We're trying to say, well, they're just all turning to meth. No, they're not. The pro- meth is throwing a monkey wrench in our treatment process. And that's the attitude we really have to grab about this or we're going to lose. Right. Because you got to get, you know, that's the difference between sobriety and recovery is you've got to do work. It's work. Yeah. Daily, forever, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you can get off of something. But if you're not dealing with what, why am I doing this? Yeah. What happened in my life? Trauma, loss, some sort of, um, you know, predis- predisposed to a mental mm-hmm. mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, those those are things that you got to get. You know, just putting a band aid on it, it's not going to until you start digging in and and doing the the work on the underlying problem. Like you said, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just going to fester, and you know, whack a mole is one off inter- and running. Yeah, one you know, one interesting thing you'll see is almost all those patients that that start that, that were addicted to opiates now they're doing meth. Follow them long enough, they'll return to opiates. You know, it's. Um, because their 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 brain is wired to have an attraction or an affinity toward that downer effect, and they don't like that stimulant, that upper. Sometimes that's actually why they they'll accept that. They'll say, "Well, I'm not as worried about the stimulant because I'm I'm not afraid of it." You know, the thing that really traps me. I know if I touch fentanyl or heroin, I'm I'm gone. But you know, the fentanyl or the 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 meth. The cocaine that, that I'm not afraid of that because it's not that's not what traps me. I can I can walk away from that. Maybe you can, but that's the more the insanity. The though. more the, the more they compulsively use it as a false coping skill. They keep using 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 it. They deplete those neurotransmitters, their norepinephrine, their serotonin, their their dopamine starts to get depleted, and they start they 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 start tweaking. They start twitching. They haven't slept in days. They've got to take something to calm down. What are they going to come down with? They go back to their opiate. Right. So almost invariably, it, it usually leads to an opiate relapse. So it just keeps them in the cycle longer. And, and the drug dealers know this. The traffickers know this. That's why they're, they're flooding the streets with this methamphetamine. It keeps their opioid addicts on the hook. Right. 
So, you know, one thing you have to realize about folks when they when they get into recovery, majority of them started getting high on a regular basis when they were teenagers. And, you know, I, one thing that, that usually makes a light bulb go off for parents, you know, they're bringing me a 25, 30-year-old child of theirs. And, you know, they wonder, like, gosh, why don't they just get it? Why can't I say? And I'll say, well, how old was Billy when he started using? You know, 16. Okay, you're dealing with a 16-year-old emotionally because ever since he started getting high daily, his coping mechanism has been to get high. Something stresses him out. You and I is from 16 to 18 to 25. Those of us that weren't battling with a chemical addiction, we had other coping skills that we learned. We learned normal 16-year-old, normal 20-year-old, normal 25-year-old coping mechanisms to address that. Well, they didn't. So he stopped developing those when the chemical became the coping skill. At the most so, critical time right. in your life. So now you've got a 30-year-old with the coping skills of a 16-year-old. And one of the things, that new software they have to put in there that I was referring to, that's what they have to develop. Now, they can catch up with therapy. They can be brought up to speed, but they have to have therapy. You don't just say, okay, now, now your, your brain's working fine, so go out into the world and everything's a raw nerve. And you're trying to deal with adult problems, court judges restitution you know you're told you have to get a job you have to go to therapy you have to do all this stuff and you've got the the mentality of a 16 year old when it comes to emotionally dealing with stress and we wonder why they fail right yeah. i mean the system's not set up to to make them succeed um, no you know, just like jail i mean you, you throw them in there for whatever it is 72 hours or you know a month with no treatment. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say somewhere else that, you know, jail is not treatment. And it's, right. and it's not. You're, you're, you're doing even a bigger disservice because you're caging somebody up like an animal and all they're doing is obsessing over what they're going to do when they they're get out. Right. And they're talking about most Oh, yes. And that's when people die, right? Yeah. They get out and they return and they use the same 20 piece that they used before or 10 piece that they used before. They don't have the tolerance for it. Now it's fatal. And um, and they use it very quickly. It's like it's like starving somebody for three days and dropping them off at Golden Corral with a twenty dollar bill. You know, right. I mean, they're going to hit it hard, no doubt. And they do. Um, but not only that, it makes them makes it impossible to duress them. They know what's going to happen when you go in the minute the cop pulls them over. Why do you think they fight the police officer? Why do you think they fight like crazy to go into jail? Why do you think they run and they don't show up to court? Because they know the minute they get put behind those those bars close, okay, I've got, you know, three to five days of being sick. Right. You, you know, when you, when I work with, when, when I work with medical students, which I, I love to do, I love having students. And, you know, my, 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 my light at the end of the tunnel is the next generation. You know, you brought up how we were trained. These kids coming up behind, I say kids, you know, I'm 51 years old now. These kids coming behind me, man, these you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, they ask for this training. You know, they will, there's certain ones, though, they'll, they'll ask to come spend time with me, and they want to do it. They want to know, even if it was, when I was doing family practice, it was their family practice rotation. They would want to come in. They'd want to see it. They'd want to hear about it. They loved dealing with the patients in recovery. And, you know, what I realized eventually is this is part of their world. You know, Sir William Osler said over 100 years ago, he who knows syphilis knows medicine. Because there was a time when, before penicillin, that the, the disease syphilis um, hit every body system. You know, it started out with, you know, a genital ulcer, but once it got systemic, it would cause fevers and systemic wasting. It could cause peripheral nerve and foot drop. It could cause heart failure. It could cause, you know, central nervous system issues. Every body system was affected by the syphilis organism. So Osler's comment was, if you want to understand medicine, study syphilis, learn what it does. And in the process, you learn medicine. And a whole generation of doctors kind of thought that way. And then 40 years ago, 30 years ago, it was HIV. You know, we had that. And we learned to have, we learned to change our thinking, stop blaming those people for their disease because they were gay or they used a needle or promiscuous or whatever. We stopped blaming them and started treating them. And we've not gotten rid of it, but we have our foot on its throat right now. And, 
you know, that was my generation. When I was a resident, you know, we told somebody they had HIV. That was, I just told them, you're going to die within five years, you know. And now it's like, well, if you take care of yourself, you know, be close to a normal life. You know, if you take your medicine, you take care of yourself. To these guys coming up, they've all lost somebody, a friend, a family member. They know somebody personally. It's touched their life. And they have a different perspective on it than I did in medical school. And they want to know. They want to know how to deal with it. They want to know how to handle it. And they want to know how to treat patients with respect and get them better. They want to be equipped to fight this when they're on their own, whether they're going to be a surgeon or a family doctor or a pediatrician. And they're not running from it. So my hope is this next generation is where we're going to get some real you know, I, I, it's it's neat. But it's when, I do, when, I, when I deal with, when I deal with family, or when I was dealing with medical students, you know, I would always teach them. And, and, and again, I guess maybe this is the, the paternalism of my my training program. But one way that you you know you you've got to some way connect with a patient when you're talking to them. And one way to connect with them is you, you almost you got to get in their head a little bit. I don't mean this in any in, in, you know nefarious way, but you know if I want you to listen to me, if I'm giving you advice and I want you to listen to me. You know, one of the best ways is figure out what scares you, you know. If you have a diabetic patient that's being noncompliant and their sugar is always 300 and they're not they're just not listening, you know, start figuring out what they're afraid of, you know. Um, ask about their family. If they watch their grandmother go through dialysis, they watch their Uncle Joe lose both his legs, that's probably what they're afraid of. Start reminding them, hey, we've got to check your feet. You know, you use that fear to help positively motivate them um whatever the disease processes you're treating you know if you can come up with some way you know some some way of getting in their head a little bit with the addicted it's real easy they're all their their primary fear is one simple thing and i've been real circuitous but this is what i was building up to their their biggest fear and it's not death we make the mistake of thinking you know you're going to die right and they, when they're in active addiction they don't care it's almost, you know, they're almost hoping for it. They know it's going to happen sooner or later. They're tired of the cycle. They went off the crazy train. What they're afraid of is being sick. They're afraid of the sickness. Which is why a lot of people can't get into recovery for opiates because mm -hmm. of the, they're scared of that withdrawal time. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, absolutely. They just, they will do anything. They will fight you. They'll become, they'll become wild sometimes because you know they're just this I, I can't go through that withdrawal it's more than just physical you know it, it, it's um it, it's like someone described it to me as imagine someone just sucked out of your brain the total ability to feel anything positive and you just you know anything good you just can't feel happy, positive, good about anything. Plus having the flu times a million. Right. Plus you're physically curled up in a ball having diarrhea and your muscles are cramping and you know, you're sweating and sneezing and eyes are Bones watering hurt. and yeah. Right. Everything hurts and right. And on top of that it's the most empty, lonely feeling in the world and you can't feel positive. You can't you know, you just want to die. Yeah. And um you know the the old saying on that is, you know, opioid withdrawal won't kill you but you wish you could die. It's such good news to hear that there's people coming up uh docs and residents that want to students that want to be part of this mm -hmm. now for a long time you were drinking through a fire hose because there weren't many of you yeah. and there probably Absolutely. still aren't right but, but my question is do you think that that's changing do you think that yeah that there's is. more docs maybe not going into addiction medicine but that are kind of having this whole you know holistic or whole at least medicine. willing to help out yes. yeah yes there there is you know what, what i what i'm hopeful for is that you know 10 15 years down the road like my, my partner dr keller over at journey recovery um she and i've had a lot of talks about this and you know what we'd like to see is like, like our office at the recovery center um using you kind of using the the analogy of i always like to talk with analogies because i think that's the best way to get my point across but think think of like a diabetes center an endocrine center for diabetics you know you've got your type 2 diabetics and there's way too many of them for everyone to have their own endocrinologist you know because there's we think 
probably 30% of the population or whatever is eventually going to be diabetic. There just aren't that many endocrinologists. So we've got endocrine specialists, diabetes, endocrine centers that people can be sent to to be stabilized. And getting the hard ones, the really difficult ones, can stay there and be treated. The ones that can be stabilized and treated maybe six months, a year, two years, can be sent back to their family doctor to treat them. The family doctor can manage it. You know, and that's what I'd love to see with addiction because people are getting there, finally getting the point that this is not, you know, you don't go through six months of IOP and aftercare and then you're fixed. You know, it's a lifelong issue. And some people may remain on the medications for indefinitely or whatever. And, um, you know, we need to be partnered with them. So we kind of think of like our office is like the hub of a wheel and, and the primary care is being the spokes and we have more primary care. It's like, well, I don't want to do addiction full time, but I'm interested. I'm willing to help out. Like in our office, we have, you know, five or six, we call them moonlighters, Doxit. One guy's a um, uh, ger- um, ger- gerontologist. He sees, you know, goes to nursing homes and that's his specialty, but he comes in one day, one half day a week and sees patients a journey. Um, we got another family doc, another one, two of them that are hospitalists that just come in and you know, they normally see patients in the hospital, but they love to come into our office and, you know, see see a few patients a half day or a day a week. And Do these people, do any of these docs have the uh, certifications for MAT? Yes, they have the, they have the MAT certification. Okay, because that's And a couple thing. of them are actually working on the addiction medicine certification. So. Okay, because, uh, you know, I've... I've heard uh, you talk before in, in a lot of other cases where you can't handle everybody because you're only allowed mm-hmm. this 100 people at a time or something well, for they, 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 have, they, they, have, they have staggered those a little bit so when you first get it it's, a, it's an 8 hour CME that you can actually do online and submit it and for the first year or so you're allowed 30 then after a year you can petition if you're a physician you can have up to 100 then if you're board certified in addiction medicine or an addiction psychiatrist, you can get up to 275. If you're practicing in a center that has case management and, you know, the Social full work. spectrum of, yeah. of, of care. So, you know, these guys can get their, their permit to handle 30 or 100 patients and do it under our auspices. But they also have us there to – and a couple of them decided to go on and try to get – there's a couple levels of certification you can get. ABAM, American Board of Addiction Medicine certification. That's just a, that's a certificate, you know, saying that you know you've got extra ability to do that. Then there's also full board certification, just like gastroenterology and cardiology are subspecialties of internal medicine. Um, the American Board of Preventative Medicine now has a specialty of addiction medicine, which you can take the board. You actually have to do a fellowship to get that. Those of us that have been doing it for a while, we have till 2021 to get grandfathered into it if we can pass the board exam. After 2021, you have to do a fellowship to get that. I am pleased to say Dr. Keller and I both did pass that exam last November. So All right, congratulations. We, uh, um, we can claim that certification. So, But the point is but, to be but, able to yeah. help more people. Right. Because for a long time, yeah. you had to turn people away. Right. I, I, I just couldn't couldn't do it, and now I have the, they have the help. I was just kind of explaining the umbrellas no, that sure. we're under. But, there's, but now that we have that umbrella and we're the hub on that wheel – people are i used to think the answer was just trying to get you know out of every practice of four or five or six or seven docs one or two that was willing to do it and that just was moving too slowly we just couldn't do it so we really need the hub and the wheel and then to build those spokes as we go along and get those other and and that seems to be what what's catching on a little better so yeah we're having better luck in that regard okay so staying on medically assisted treatment um it seems to be more widely accepted than it has been. For not everybody needs that, but some do. Sure, right. Some are going to need those it. that. Yeah, for for those that do need it. Now, when it comes to that, for people that use it long term, mm-hmm. and this is where I'm still kind of you know switching my mentality is, I've always thought that it should be used as a bridge mm-hmm. to all ultimately to abstinence or. You know, ideally, yes, right. But then, hearing you speak um, on some some other uh, uh, places and platforms, biology plays a big yeah, exactly, uh, a big role in that. So, talk a little bit about you know, it, certainly that, that some people may need it for a month, but some people, 
you've talked at length about this before, and I just wanted to get a little taste. And, of and, and I've refined my spiel a little bit because yeah. Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of patients. I'll kind of give you my, my little spill with a, with a patient because, first of all, I want to say to all the people that are in the program, either the, the eight-step Celebrate Recovery or the 12-step AANA, I respect your program. I, I do. I think you guys have the way. That is exactly it. I, I'm not going to badmouth the programs at all. I'm just going to probably not be congruent with those of you that think everything has to be abstinence-based. And now I'm going to explain myself, okay? Um, because the premise of that is that addiction's addiction's addiction, which is kind of what I was saying, that the underlying basis of it is addiction, and that's true. However, when you start to get into the opiates pretty long-term, you have to recognize that there are some differences. Some things happen biologically. It's like saying cancer's cancer's cancer. Well, when we break it down, don't we treat colon cancer and breast cancer differently based on the biology of the cancer? And we're foolish to not recognize that. For example, when you take an opiate, you know, opiate addiction is one of the things that you actually, you know, like for, contrast this with alcohol or um, stimulant use. In those cases, you're, you're mimicking or, or stimulating the endogenous production of a chemical. With opiate addiction, you actually suppress the production of something, and the drug that you're taking replaces that substance. Okay, So there's a physical difference there. In other words, endorphins normally float around in your bloodstream or in, in, your, in your brain, in your, in your central nervous system. And those endorphins bind to mu opioid receptors. And they cause that feeling of well-being, happiness, you know, kumbaya, is copacetic with the universe, that kind of thing. Um, that's the function of a mu opioid receptor. Endorphin is the natural substrate to that. By the way, exercise is a big part of recovery because endorphins are increased by exercise and physical activity. So get off the couch if you're in recovery because it's going to help. When you take an opiate drug... Um, at various levels, you're going to get suppression of that endogenous endorphin. You're assuming that it's going to come back. What if it doesn't? You know, it's analogous to the person with emphysema that takes, and this is just one example sure. of, of maybe why this phenomenon happens. But like maybe you've known a COPD patient, you know, a lung patient that's been on so much prednisone, they now have to stay on a low dose of prednisone because their adrenal glands can't keep up. It's the same kind of phenomenon, okay? You've knocked off the endorphin function. So how many, how many people have you known that have two, three years in recovery and they hang themselves or they commit suicide? And when you talk to the people around them, you know, he just never seemed happy. He never seemed like he was functioning. You know, he was sober. We could drug test him at any point. But he never felt, he never, just wasn't himself. How many people you know like that? Man, I know tons. We think that that's probably the endorphin function not returning. Okay. So I'm not saying they need to stay on 20 milligrams of Suboxone forever. You know, maybe over time they can be weaned down to two milligrams. But some of these people need to be on a, a long-term low dose of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's what, people come and ask me, how long am I going to be on this? I don't know. Let's see how, how you do. Um, the most important thing is you, you got to fix what you got to fix. And there's people that wander in contemplativeness for a long time, you know, sure. and, and, but they're alive. A mom's got a neck to hug, right? you know, and the difference is in alcoholism, the, the old saying was, let them go until they're sick and tired of being sick and tired and they'll come around. Well, they die with this before that happens. That's the problem. The biggest problem with that mentality if I take the alcoholic, the average alcoholic, okay, and put them in a detox program, send them to an IOP and aftercare and an AA-based program, maybe 30 to 40% of them are going to be completely abstinent in six months. Go through that ringer two or three times. You know, you're looking at the chance of three-fourths of them, maybe 80, even up to 80, 85%, a really good program, are eventually going to get it. They're going to get kicked around, but they're going to make it. Across the board, no matter what we do, no matter what system you use, whether you use um, cognitive-based therapy, no matter what therapy you use, no matter what paradigm, 5% of opiate users are still clean after six months, consistently. Now, doesn't AA have a term for doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? 
insanity. Yeah. If you have a big book, look at page 133. You can tell I do this speech a lot, right? <laughs> Bottom of page 133, Bill W.'s own words. There'll come a day when doctors and psychologists have doing innovative ways to treat us. Do not hesitate to take your health care needs to the, such individuals. They will help you. Yeah, he foresaw a day when something it was gonna when things were gonna get funky and you needed the help of people that were going to. Now, what I also ask a patient is what is your definition of sobriety? Sobriety is a state of mind. It's not an, a presence or absence of something, but it's a state of mind. So if I'm giving you a medication that is not altering your sensorium, you're taking it as I prescribe. You're doing the right thing with it, and you're working your steps, you're doing your program, and you're becoming a better person, and you're feeding your kids, and you're becoming a parent, and you're holding a job, and you're moving forward. Why is that not sobriety? Right. You it's know? So this is so great to get a medical perspective because you know, there's stigma of all kinds, and I, until very recently, very recently, uh, thought that why can't everybody get to abstinence hmm? and not being a staunch abstinence why, guy but like it it why it, can't it has metformin, a purpose to be a bridge. why can't every diabetic lose weight why can't every diabetic be controlled with metformin why can't but, right yeah, it, but particularly with you know bridging tapering down mm -hmm. and getting off but hearing this with mm -hmm. different biologies and, and somebody just blowing out that that certain receptor I don't know, it just, it, it opens, well, uh, hope, hopefully it opens a lot of people's eyes to the fact that it's not, everybody's different. Yep. I like, I like to say now what a sponsor is. A sponsor is a tour guide through the 12 steps. A sponsor is dangerous if they say you have to walk those 12 steps exactly like I did in my footprints. They're helpful when they say, okay, I'm, I'm your guide to application of these 12 steps in your own life. I'm going to help you understand and apply what these 12 steps mean. That's the role of a sponsor, a healthy sponsor. The one that's dangerous is the one that says, you have to do exactly what I did the way I did it because they, 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 they get people killed, to be honest. Right. People follow. Well, the last thing I would say about that is um, there was a study put out, and, and I, can't, I, I can probably find you the exact reference because I actually – had to try, I did a CME lecture back last June, but um, the gist of it is this. NIH funded it. It was published in 2015. And this is kind of an overview of the whole Suboxone thought in like 30 seconds or less. When Suboxone came out in 2002, it was meant to be for detox. You're aware of that, right? Yes. You know, it was supposed to be the idea of we'll make you comfortable for two weeks. So that way you come down smooth instead of just falling out of the sky. What they found was if they detox people over two weeks with Suboxone as opposed to the, the old-fashioned white-knuckle detox, at six months, that 5% didn't change that I talked to you before. In other words, the outcome didn't change. It didn't change the outcome. It just made you more comfortable. But the outcome didn't change. So then the, the, this was actually done with, with thousands of people in a pool. They kind of followed these along to see what happened. Um, and it was from the time that it was brought out until 2015 when they compiled this data and, and showed, showed the, the longitudinal results. It was a multi-center study. And what they did then is they showed that, okay, so they took you know, thousands of people that failed at the six-month period and put them back on it for three months and then tapered them over two weeks. And what they found was they had about 85% failure rate. So the success rate went from 5 to 15%, but we still lost 85% of them. So then they said, let's put them back on it and just not worry about when we're going to get them off of it and see what happens. At one year, close to – like in the mid-50s, I forget the exact number, but I think it was like 56 or 58 percent. At one year, that percentage had not used opiates in six months. At two years, the number was well into the 60 percent. At 42 months, people that were still consistently taking buprenorphine were – had a success rate of like 72% with no, no abuse, with no, no abuse, no surreptitious opioid use in the last six months. So, you know, I'm always like, I, I know what my opinions are, but I'm always like, show me the data, mm. you know, because 30 years ago, I would have also been all pro marijuana <laughs> yeah. and the data says otherwise. Sorry guys. Yeah. But you know, I'm like, I look at the data, you know, the data doesn't support it. 
Um, and the, but the data supports this. And when you look at it, further breakdown of the data shows that there's two groups that seem to do extremely well. One group was the people that had gotten addicted because of a chronic pain issue, and they got addicted to painkillers because they were prescribed. And yeah, maybe they had three back surgeries or something like that. If they were on their Suboxone and on a stable dose, and they were getting proper pain management treatment, like, say, injections in their back or whatever, seeing an appropriate specialist for their condition, they didn't abuse opiates, and they had the best quality of life. They were doing well. The other section was, that, and this is really interesting, and this brings up a huge point. It goes back to what we said a minute ago about the endorphins, and it, it opens up a whole can of worms. Um, might be talk for a topic for another talk, but is the people had chronic recalcitrant relapsing depression that dealt back to their teenage years, and there's actually some uh, some suggestion in the psychiatry literature that buprenorphine may function as an antidepressant. So when you think about the 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 anatomy of an opioid user, all right, of what happened, a lot of times you've got this kid that started snorting pills and found out they made them feel good. Think about how antidepressants work. Antidepressant, basically, you see your doctor, you, you're diagnosed with depression. We start off with an SSRI because it keeps serotonin around. We're, we're trying to alter some chemical in your brain to make you less depressed. That's the, the, that's the idea of an antidepressant. We start with serotonin because that's the easiest one, and that's the least amount of side effects at least the most tolerable side effects. If the, the Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro doesn't work, we might move up to Cymbalta or Effexor, which adds a little bit of norepinephrine activity to it, right? And then maybe we'll move to something like, well, butrin has got dopamine activity. It's a game of, not really, I say game with people's brain chemistry, but you're trying to find that, that what, what, what and, and there's some people with depression that we, we just don't find the right, well, maybe that's not the neurotransmitter that's off on them. Maybe it's the endorphins that we're off to start with. We know there's a genetic predisposition to this. Maybe you're dealing with people that had a pre that their genetic predisposition to depression and opioid dependency is tied together. Has to do with the endorphin system. When they stumbled onto opiates, they stumbled onto something that cured their depression. They just couldn't control it. Taking them off the Suboxone, even at a low dose, puts them in danger of a relapse and a danger of going into depression, even suicidality again, because you are actually treating the condition. If they're compliant, they're not abusing it, they're not getting high, they're seeing you, and their life is massively improved, what's the problem? Right. You fixed somebody. Right. You know, we might have actually stumbled onto the answer for, I'm not saying that's not the case for everybody, but there are definitely people that you can relate to that story when I laid it out like that. Right. You know, I can think of, you know, I say this to certain people when I'm seeing them, and it's like, you just described my me from age 16 to 30, Doc. And I'm like, well, it makes sense. So I was, you know, there's one school of thought, like you said, Trevor, you, know, you get them on and you try to get them off quickly, back to absence-based. And that, I think, should be the goal if it's attainable. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is never take them off. If you look at some of the national experts, they'll say never stop it because stopping it can lead to relapse, which can be death. I mean, you get one bad batch of dope and you're dead. Um, I try to stay in the right smack in the middle of that. Yeah. It's like, look, you tell me by your recovery what you need and where you're at. You know, when I, I ask people, you know, I'll be... When they when when they're showing signs that they're doing well, they've completed therapy. They've been on it six months. They're doing great. What do you think about tapering? If I see it look a total panic on their face, I drop it. You know, it's like you're doing well. I'm not. I'm you know. I'm not here to screw that up. Yeah. If very interesting. If, if they say, you know what? Yeah, I'd like to try to come down. Great. Let's cut you down ten percent of your dose, and next month we'll talk about going down a little bit more, and a little bit more. You know. and, and by doing it so methodically, you can probably be able to see if that depression leaks back in right. and see some of those. And I warn them about it. I say, you know, and even in, 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 in several cases, I've had people that, you know, got off successfully. We do well. Three or four years, I end up back in my office. Doc, I messed up again. I relapsed. Okay. Well, let's, let's start it back up, you know. Try to leave the door open so they know that when they're in trouble, they can come back. Because it is a lifelong illness. It's not going to just... It's like being diabetic, you know, you're 
you know, someone like myself that's a little overweight and your sugars are out of control, you lose 50 pounds, it gets under control, you gain the 50 pounds back, it comes back. You know, it, it doesn't just go away because you finish treatment. Yeah. So I was there, you know, new life stressors come up. I have one fella and, you know, I try to keep it to where um, names and, you know, it's not too identifiable, but one particular individual, he'd been off of it, you know, three or four years, you know, and he hit a new stage of life. He got married, bought a house, was running his own business. And um, I actually been seeing him as his family doctor. You know, I was still doing family practice at the time and he showed back up in my office and I'm like, are you sick? And it's not time for your physical. What's going on? And he just put his face in his hands and said, I, I messed up. I've been using pills for about a month now. And all right, man, let's get you back on it. And, you know, it was about three years ago and he's doing great. He's back on track again. And that just shows you that it's for life. Yeah. It's like a diabetic or things, other things we talk about, medical conditions. It can absolutely be controlled, but, you know, you start tweaking with it, you know, it, it can flare back up. Yeah. What you need when you need it. You know, just like, just like a diabetic patient. Your doctor has to have the ability and the freedom to treat, to give you what you need when you need it. You know, I'm not, I'm not against abstinence-based stuff. I mean, if it works, it's great. If you're in, if you're in the five, five to 10 percent great man don't let me mess it up don't let me take it away from you but you know don't take it away don't take my stuff away from the 90 percent, 95 percent that need me yeah and you've talked about you know the, the fact that opiates are it's it's a different animal not every addiction is the same it affects people very differently mm -hmm. but people with opiate addiction it, it ravages to where an abstinence-based thing might not just be as cut and dry as somebody that yeah. struggles with alcoholism or or something like that yeah um i, I want to ask one thing sure uh, that's not really has any medical benefit to it but i just want to get your opinion okay so there's a big debate on narcan and i, I keep i see facebook posts and you know people pontificating about this but someone that's revived with narcan does not they can get up off that gurney and walk away right then there's no they're not mandated to be uh, admitted to the hospital mm -hmm. not relegated to treatment or being held for a period of time but then they can go out and od again that same they day could. and get revived again that day they could so they could. i wanted to get your opinion on because uh, there's a lot of people that get pissed off sure that i get it what why you know and, and a guy who Narcan twice in a day, and a guy with a sugar of four hundred can get insulin and go out and eat another pack of donuts. I mean, I don't mean to be facetious, but no, no. But the, the problem is, I, I I see that. But he, you know, and a lot of people don't like the Good Samaritan laws either. The fact that you know, if you call nine one one, if you're shooting up with your buddy and your buddy ODs, and you call nine one one, that the police can't arrest you. They they have issues with that too. But here's the problem: people were dying, people were afraid of being arrested, so they were leaving people. They were dropping them off. They weren't being called. They weren't getting the Narcan. They were getting Narcan, but they weren't going to the emergency room. Okay, so that's the outcome if you don't do it that way. They won't come, and you're actually going to see the death rate go up. I, I get it. There's no perfect answer to that problem, right? Because if you require them to stay, you make it a legal thing where they're on a 72-hour hold. They won't go to the ER. They'll fight you. You'll, you'll go backwards in our ability to use Narcan. I mean, our, our when we we started using Narcan, it's it's like you're you're deep sea fishing for big game fish, and you catch a marlin, you have no idea what you're going to do with it. <laughs> you know, the problem is we have to have some system in place that. Once they they wake up, it's like, oh, my God, I almost died. You know, well, here, you know, let's get a caseworker in the emergency room. Let's plug this person in. Let's, you know, um, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Hopkins did a study in 2017 that showed that when that person came in the emergency room, if you sent in a caseworker or social worker and offered that person eight milligrams of buprenorphine and an appointment at the clinic, then within 24 hours, that... At the end of the month, if they took the pill, within at the end of a month, seventy eight percent were still engaged in treatment. 
So, so giving them that opportunity. So, yeah. So, and see, giving them a beeper, giving them, them go a beeper, to giving the them ER. a buprenorphine in the emergency room does two things. Number one, they don't start craving immediately. Number two, if they go out and use buprenorphine's a partial blocker. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Suboxone also blocks, so it makes it harder for them to go overdose again if they go out and try to use again. So it's a twofold insurance plan. The, the point is that what we need to fix isn't so much re- legally requiring them to do this or that, but we got to fix what happens once they get there so they're not afraid of it. In other words, it's it's the fishing boat that that, that needs revamped because, you know, perfect example. I mean, because some places are getting it. You know, I saw the most beautiful thing about three weeks ago. A young woman went, she was pregnant, had a near overdose, was in UC's emergency room at six in the morning. They gave her a dose of buprenorphine. She was pregnant. Did I mention that? At 2.30 that afternoon, she was in my office in front of me and enrolling in baby steps. It's amazing. You know, we didn't have that system in place three, four years ago, five years ago. You know, the ERs coordinate, us being there, ER coordinating with us. You know, they're not afraid to come in. They'll come in asking for the phone number once they wake up if they if, if the word gets out that the system's there. I'm like sending them when they call our office. I try to get them in within two, a day or two, if it's feasible. You know, I mean, but getting them to the ER, I guess, is the. I don't know the percentage of people that go or don't go, or you know. Uh, I think they should be mandated to go to the ER and be checked out. Me too. Because because me and here's too. what I mean. And actually, I I, I know personally know a, a young fellow that I took care of since he was about eight years old who passed away last year, out in Bracken County, Kentucky. He over he lived with his mother. His mother was struggling also. He overdosed. Um, he got Narcan. The squad showed up. He was awake walking around. He refused to go. The squad left. About 15 minutes later, he went down again because it was fentanyl. He didn't reuse, but the fentanyl outlasted the Narcan that he'd been given. And he went down a second time. By the time they got back, he was gone. Had he went with the squad, they could have re-Narcaned him, got him en route to the hospital, saved him. But the failure to go to the emergency room, I mean, that's that's more than theoretical, man. That's somebody that I know and know the exact sequence of events. And that theoretical situation has always existed. But this right. this is a known. This is like, okay, well, there it is. There's there's a sequence right there. There's one we lost, definitely. I could tell you the guy's name. Right. And I could look up the date that it happened on. So, I mean, it does happen. So going in, I always tell people, every time I start a new patient on Suboxone, they get an Narcan script. So hopefully you never need this. And if you do use it, hopefully it's on a neighbor or something. And I, you know, but if it if it's used, go to the ER, get you know, get it, get straightened out, you know. Um, even if it's just referring you back to me and say, okay, let's get on, get your dose for today and get back to the, you know, get on it. Um, I know when we first when we first started doing the Narcan, that, that that was it was so controversial. I was doing a town hall meeting in Campbell County, and she meant well, but pe- people don't think it through. You know, this this lady, it was, this meeting was a town hall set up by pastors. And this lady, so she meant well, it was an older church lady. And she said, well, how many times do you, do you Narcan somebody? I'm like, excuse me? She said, you know, the guy, he's been Narcan three, four, five times. So when, when do you say enough and you stop doing it? And part of me just wanted to scream at her. And part of me realized she just didn't get it. And I thought for a minute, and God gave me a beautiful answer. I just said, I used the words of Christ himself. I said, 70 times 7. You know, if, if you're not familiar with it, in Matthew 18, when Peter said to Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother who sins against me? Once, twice, seven times. Jesus said, no, I tell you 70 times 7. So I guess scripturally on the 491st time, you can ignore the Narcan. <laughs> but, I mean, it drove the point home. Sure. It's like you just keep... You're, you're, not, you're not allowed to stop. Right. Because the alternative is you have a human being that's not breathing, and you have something in your hand that'll make them breathe. Right. What kind of person are you if you don't use it? I don't care how angry they make you. I don't care your, your thoughts about it. I'm, I'm sorry if you're a paramedic that's been jaded by how many people we've had to revive. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I, I realize that's a hard job, and you know, you get sick of shooting the same people over and over again. But... That's not the time to make that judgment call. When you're sitting there with Narcan and you choose not to give it, 
You know, yeah. are you ready to play God and decide who's going to live or not? Right. I can tell you the people that have, have been revived seven, eight times, and now they're leading other people out of the darkness. I mean, it's right. just. We had Tom signing on here a few months ago. I love Chief. Yeah. It, and he said this is the first time in history where we have a group of people where we honestly consider letting them die. We have the conversation mm-hmm. this, of somebody saying, when, enough, when's enough, enough. <laughs> You know, and that's just a, a sad state of affairs where there's a population that we actually, some people consider. The, not- ba- the basis of our humanity is the value that we place on human life. And when we stop doing that, we start to lose our humanity, period. Right. Okay, well. We're going to have to have you back. Lots of, <laughs> a lot of stuff still to talk about. but uh, I'm sorry if I no, rambled too much. No, not at all. Uh, thank you for everything that you do, and, and hopefully we're going to get a lot more people Love in, the, it. in the medically uh, you know, um, addiction medicine field and take care of this, this problem we have and, and start chipping away even more. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Whatever it takes, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.